0: And I just remember a time during what scholars now call the Jesus People Movement, which, you know, it was called that because it was all about Jesus. And, um, and it was during that season that I just remember so many of those moments where the Lord met with his people, and um, his presence was the thing that people wanted to get back to over and over and over again. The theme of this conference, Keep On Asking, I believe the secret, if you want to use that word, the secret to keeping on asking is to keep on thirsting. Once exposed to him, once you have a sense of his majesty and his beauty, once he blesses you with one of those times of refreshing as your birthright, you want it again. You have tasted the Lord. You have seen that he is good, and you can't wait to get back again. To that moment, to that space, that place in your heart where it's just you and him. Um, As it's been shared, I had an opportunity to visit the Asbury outpouring that was occurring in Wilmore, Kentucky in February. And if there was one common thread of comment that I heard from people who would come together and, and just be exposed to what the Lord was doing is... They would take a break or to eat or sleep or something. But they wanted to get back just as soon as they could. Because something was happening. They could not describe it. It was indescribable. But it's just him. And you don't have to go, as we'll see this morning, to Wilmore, Kentucky. Thankfully, it's just a little place. And... Um, To meet with God. Because he has said. That if you will simply create a space. Go into your room. Close your door. Shut out everything else. To where it's just you and him. He will see. Attention to this morning is found in Ezekiel chapter 22. And verse 23. Ezekiel 22 and verse 23. And and this is a moment in Ezekiel's prophetic teaching where he is describing what sounds like a hopeless situation. I hope you will hear that. National hopelessness. Individual hopelessness. Darkness coming in like a flood. And it seems that there's no way it's ever going to change. Ezekiel 22, verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things they have not distinguished between the holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gains. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppress the stranger. So, I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Father, as we have gathered in this place this morning, we truly wish to give you praise and thanks for the great mercy you have shown us. First, that you have always loved us. That from the very moment that sin entered your creation, You had a rescue mission in mind. You sent your son to deliver us. To rescue us from this present evil age. And then in a way that I still don't understand. You have so united us with yourself. That you have determined... to finish the story of countless rescues by using us. Forgive us, Lord, for merely talking about problems and somehow acquiescing to a powerlessness to do anything about them when you have offered us so very much In yourself. We ask you Lord to come. To walk among us this morning. We welcome you here. In Jesus name. We pray. Amen. So I sought for a man among them. Who would make a wall. And stand in the gap before me. On behalf of the land. That I should not destroy it. But I found no one. I want to talk with you in this final session this morning about intercessory prayer, about becoming an intercessor. Uh, Intercession is something we do, but then there is a certain kind of prayer where it's called an intercession, the very prayer itself. So it can be a noun, it can be a verb. But why is this important for us to talk about this morning? First, and we've said this, he has united us to Jesus and seated us where he is at the right hand of the Father. There is a reality that you cannot see that dramatically affects the world that you do see. There is a king on a throne. And as Jesus ascended into heaven and the Father assigned him this place, prophesied by David in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool. And so when Jesus ascended into heaven, that happened. And that's what he's doing right now. He's making the enemies a footstool. It may not seem that way. But that's what he says he's doing. You know, when the Pharisees kept trying to trap Jesus and ask him tough questions. Oh, we got him now. And they ask him this question, that question. Jesus finally shut them all down. You know how he did it? He used Psalm 110 verse 1. The most quoted Old Testament verse. In the New Testament. He said "The Christ. Whose son is he? They said well he's the son of David. They answered. They they thought they were given the right Sunday school answer. He's the son of David. And he said well why then does David write. As if he's listening in to a conversation. The Lord said to my Lord. Sit here until I make your enemies a footstool. Who's he talking about? Well, that just stopped it. They didn't ask him any more questions. They were tired of getting shown up. In this particular case, they were flat out stumped. Have you ever been stumped? They were just, he just wiped them out, wiped the floor with them in that particular moment. So, there's this understanding in the earliest Christians' mind. They are taught this. To have a view of the unseen realm... Where their Lord Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And not only is he sitting there. But when you trusted Jesus to save you. And he gave you the guarantee of everything. And the supply of everything you need. In his Holy Spirit. And placed him inside of you. He says in Ephesians 2. He raised us up with him. And we are seated with him. In this realm that I cannot see. And so do you think of yourself in that way? Paul said, I want you to think this way, if if then you've been raised with Christ. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Really look through a double lens as you walk about. Because you are not just a a bunch of chemicals inside some kind of a skin. You are a citizen of heaven. And as Warren prayed, you have been moved from the kingdom of darkness, translated, conveyed, into the kingdom of the sun. This is a very real truth about you. And so that's the first reason I think we need to talk about intercession. This will make sense in a moment. So the second reason is, he's molding you and me into the likeness of his son. I mentioned this last night. We know from Romans 8, that his purpose, his plan is to conform us to the image of his son. And so if I want to know where my prayer life is going, <laughs> the trajectory of my prayer life, what he's teaching me, what he wants to accomplish in me, I just need to look at Jesus. Track his prayer life. Because that's where you're going, sir. That's where you're going, man. That's what he's doing with you. Whether you fully comprehend it or understand it or not. So many times, our agenda and the Lord's agenda are just not the same. But your prayer life is very, very important to Him. Now, how important is the prayer life of Jesus? Well, What is Jesus doing right now? He's praying for you. And that, if He had a a job description, the top of the list, making intercession for you. This is said in two different places in Scripture. Romans 8, Hebrews 7. But in Romans 8, verse 34, it says, Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, there it is again, who also makes intercession for us. He's praying for you right now. Tomorrow morning when you get up and, and uh, this wonderful prayer conference is in your rear view mirror, He's still praying for you. And so if His objective is to mold you to the image of His Son, it stands to reason that the most important activity that you could ever engage in is to draw near to Him and see what He sees and be exposed to His heart and pray. And so... The last thing I think that's important about why we should look at intercessory prayer is that he's linked in a way that I can show you in Scripture, but this is not the message. But he is linked his work in this world and the defeat of the enemy to the prayers of his people. I truly don't understand that. But it is what he has chosen to do. So many times I have to deal with, with with people who struggle with the idea of prayer and they say, well, God is sovereign. He's on His throne. He's already decided everything. Everything's going to happen the way He wants it to happen. And yet we have all of these scriptures where He says to call on Me, to seek Me with all your heart. And then we have the very example of Jesus Himself who's making intercession for us. Why? Is it not Something that we have overlooked even in the model prayer that we are given these petitions to pray. Our Father, Your name, let it be lifted up. Your kingdom, let it come. Your will, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we just breeze right through that. Not understanding the implication that He's saying, ask me this. Ask this. Every day. And the implication is. If I don't ask. Is he going to do anything? Is he going to act? Well that's what we see here. In Ezekiel chapter 22. We see exactly that that thing. We see a nation. that That is corrupt. So. So let's let's uh, we're going to look at this text Ezekiel 22 for just a moment, and we're going to we're going to think together about what is being said there. And I want to to um, talk about this around three questions. And the first question is the question why. When we think about standing before the Lord on behalf of someone else or or a people. Why? Why? So we read in that text, we read it, that the entire nation is corrupt. The spiritual leaders, the priests, are corrupt. The political leaders are corrupt. The prophets are corrupt. And the people are corrupt. And And it's describing a scene that, that I listen sometimes to other believers, when they look at our nation and they're talking in the same terms. Oh, they're just a bunch of thieves and criminals up there, you know, talking about government. And and there's no thought to, to the admonitions we read in Scripture about praying for those in authority. But we will certainly complain about those in authority. <laughs> And and we'll point out their crimes and their sins and their, the darkness that has just come in like a flood, and it just becomes us talking and talking and talking about the problems, but powerless to see anything done about it. And that is not what the Lord is saying to us in this passage. As dark as it was and as hopeless as it seemed to be, there's this dramatic moment. So. And the moment that word comes up, so I sought for for a man. He was looking for something. The message is, it's not too late. It's not too late. I don't care how dark you think it is. It's not too late. Don't ever assume that. Pray and ask and pray and ask and pray and ask and do not relent. And so, the reference here to standing in the gap, this is a reference to ancient siege warfare. The cities and the towns of that era had to have some way of protecting them. And the primary way they were protected from their enemies was through their walls. And they were incredible walls. The better your walls, the more protection you provided. And you were safe if you had good walls. And, and uh, we know that this is important from from the story of Nehemiah, who hears this report from his brothers that the walls are in disrepair and the people are in despair and these guys are coming talking about the problem. It's not bothering them. Hey, you know, how are things in Jerusalem? Well, the walls are down, they're burned. The people are in despair. They're not moved by it. They're reading the newspaper. Oh, it's just terrible what's happening in Jerusalem. Nehemiah Nehemiah hears it. and And he can't do anything else for four months. Everything stops for him. Because he is hearing in an entirely another dimension of reality. He is seeing what God sees, and he is hearing what God hears, and he is devastated. He is broken. And dear one, that's the essence of how I define brokenness and how I think it's a good way to think about brokenness is what happened with Nehemiah, because once he understood the significance of the walls being broken down and burned and in disrepair, he could never see the world the same way again. And that's what happens when the Lord shows you the truth about yourself or your circumstances. You can never see it the same way again. Everything changes in his presence. And so in siege warfare, if you were the enemy trying to break into the safety and the security of these people, you would want to breach the wall. They would build ramps up and they would... Uh, In a military sense, the the top part of the wall was weaker than the lower part of the wall. And so they would build these ramps up and they would pound and pound and pound and pound and pound and pound pound against the wall until there was a break in the wall. The Hebrew word for this is perez. Perez. So it's used a lot in the Old Testament. Um, Tamar had Twins. And one of them started to come out. And they tied a little red thread on his... But he didn't... He won the first one out. The other one pulled him back in. <laughs> and the other one came out first. And they named him Paris, Which is based on Perez. He broke through. Perez. And so... This concept of the, of the gap... Is this concept of a breach. And because there's a breach in the wall... Now the enemy in ancient times can just come in like a flood unless someone stops them. Now when I read this text, it sounds like they've already come in. It's just too late. There's no stopping it. But now we're not talking about physical realities at this point. Obviously the gap represents something else. It's a spiritual reality. That the way these people are behaving, the way these people are acting... It's because they're being influenced. And and this influence needs to be changed. And the Lord says, I look for a man. One person who would see what I see. Understand something of my heart. And who would stand before me. Literally before my face. On behalf of the land. In first John five nineteen, the Bible says we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so here you and I are, we are bright lights in a dark place. We are citizens of two worlds. We are seated in the heavenlies. We're taught to view the world from that place, that high position, and that in the presence of God. Set your mind there. Your life is there. Your real life is there. When Jesus returns, He's bringing that life with Him <laughs> because you're in Christ. But the world's under the sway of the the wicked one. Three times in the Gospel of John, he refers to Satan as the ruler of this world, the the archon, the highest authority in a geographical region, the ruler of this world. And so here you and I are as aliens in a hostile environment. But we're not defeated. In fact, we're a threat. Properly understood, we are a real problem for the enemy and what he's doing in the world. And so the Lord has said that the kingdom of God is at hand. When he came and preached the good news of the kingdom, he's saying, look, the rule of God, the presence of God is here. It's at hand, is available. And these things that I'm doing are demonstrations of the inbreaking of the rule of God. The kingdom is on the move. The rule of God, the presence of God. He said, he said you know, you guys... Uh, the the Pharisees and the religionists were looking at Jesus and said, oh, he does miracles, but he casts out demons. He does it by the power of Satan. Beasible. And Jesus said, that's absurd. I'm paraphrasing. PRB, Fusick Revised Version. (laughs) That's absurd. A house divided against itself can't stand. But, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, he says in one gospel, by the spirit of God in another gospel, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so these miracles and these demon expulsions were demonstrations of what happens when God is present. Everything's put back the way he intended it to be. Health, nature, the presence of demons, he just puts it back the way it's supposed to be. And so we see this now in this text, Ezekiel 22, that yes, their world is flooded with darkness. Yes, the evil one is holding sway and influencing. Yes, he tempts Jesus even, offering him the kingdoms of the world a legitimate temptation or a legitimate offer. It wouldn't have been a temptation to Jesus. And, And he offers him the kingdoms of the world, which says a lot about what's influencing the governments and political systems and the power structures of business and society and culture. Why we shouldn't buy into some of that. So I look for a man, he says. I didn't need a Bible study group, I didn't need a small group, he says. I just looked for a person, a single person. But why? Uh, the Celtics, the, the, in the Celtic paganism, used to look at certain places geographically and they had a word for it. I can't say it. But they had a word to describe it and they called them, essentially they called them thin places. And their belief was that if you went to this particular rock or this particular high place that you were then in a place where the, the, um, the vision, the barrier between the seen and unseen, between the natural and the supernatural gets really thin. Celtic Christians saw parallel truth in the Scripture and in their faith to that concept. That when you and I pray, we are creating a thin place. Because we are coming very, very close to the truth, full reality of what's happening, who we are, the truth about us, and the world that we live in. So yes, it's the truth. But this gap is this man or woman who comes and puts himself into that thin place before him. That's why we intercede. Is because the Father, in a way I don't understand, is looking to us to be a part of his story of redeeming the world. Setting people free. Making the darkness go away. And so that's why. The next question, oh, by the way, there's another example. I just want to mention it in passing, in case you think this is a one-off statement in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 59, verse 15, just listen. Isaiah 59, verse 15. Very same scenario. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, if I decide I'm going to do what pleases the Lord, I become a prey, a target. And so Isaiah was describing the same kind of social and cultural scenario that Ezekiel was talking about. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. And so clearly in the text, now in Ezekiel's day, God was going to bring destruction. And uh, if you keep reading Ezekiel, you know, you'll see him say, so I looked for a man. there wasn't one. So I, I just brought this destruction. But it wasn't inevitable that at that moment in their history that that would be the conclusion, at that moment. There was another option. But no one stood. No one stepped up. They saw the problem, but they didn't step into that gap. Isaiah says the same thing. The difference is in Isaiah, he says, so I raised up a standard, God says. No one else is going to do it, so I'm just going to do it this time. I'm going to raise up the standard, and uh, things are going to change. I think uh, one of the most beautiful examples, early examples we see in Scripture is in Exodus 17, Moses the people of Israel freshly delivered from Egypt. The very first battle, Amalek attacks the nation of Israel. These people were not warriors. They had not fought. They were, had been slaves. They had been laborers. And now they're thrust into a military situation. And so you know the story. Those of you who are Bible scholars, you'll know the story. Moses goes up on a hill where he can oversee the battlefield. And he stands before the Lord. And as long as his hands are raised, Israel prevails in the conflict. But when he gets tired and his hands come down, Amalek prevails. So Aaron and Hur, seeing what's happening, said, we've got to fix this. said, Moses, sit down. Sit here. One of them takes his hand, holds it up. The other one takes his other hand, holds it up. I bet his arms were sore at the end of that day. But they held his hands up. He was standing before the Lord. And then he was sitting. But he was before the Lord on behalf of the people who were engaged in this life and death struggle. But obviously there was an unseen dimension to the conflict. Or it wouldn't have made... A hill's beans were the difference that he was on the hill raising his hands. He was in that thin place between the reality we see and the reality we can't see. And so that's why it matters. Because people who will stand in that gap are going to tilt the balance of power in the conflict that is raging around you and me. So that's why. Second question, how? 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 To, to talk about uh, how we do this, um, obviously we stand before him on behalf of the land, but I want to take you to another text where I think we have much more light on the subject. and That's Ephesians chapter 6. Now again, those of you who are Bible scholars, you grew up in church, you'll recognize the armor of God passage right away and how how familiar that is and how many sermons you've heard about it. And I am not going to talk about the armor this morning. I just want to make two or three observations because we're trying to understand what does it mean to stand in this thin place, the gap, before the Lord on behalf of the nation or the land. Okay? So let's just read. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong, but not the kind of strength that you work up. Be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might. Now again. If you understand abiding in Christ. He says you bear much fruit. If you will maintain this fellowship. Relationship. This reliance upon me. And, um, and I will supply what you need is the vine. You're just a conduit. And I'm going to use you. And you're going to bear fruit. But I supply that to you. So in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to what? Stand. Remember that. Against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Moses understood that. Ezekiel understood that. The problems erupting in your family. The problems erupting in your church. The problems erupting in your community. There is an unseen dimension to that problem. There is something happening that you cannot see with your eyes. We do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts, armies of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the real fight. That's where everything changes. That's where difference is made. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all. To what? Stand. There it is again. And then in the very next verse. Stand therefore. Now you've heard it three times. So he's describing. A spiritual conflict. Spiritual warfare. And we need equipment for that. Yes, the armor of God, but what is our objective? To stand. To stand. That's that's the goal. To stand. Now, there's content to that word. It means something, but but I want you to hear that the goal is to stand. What did Ezekiel say? That God is looking for men who would build up the wall and stand in the parat's, the breach, where where the conflict is taking place and where lives are at stake and marriages are at stake and children are at stake, stand. So what does he do while he's standing? This is, this is the how we stand. What, what, is, what does it mean to stand? What, what's the content of that? Verse 17 helps us. Take the helmet of salvation and here we go. And the sword of the Spirit. You know this. It's the only offensive weapon mentioned the armor, the sword of the spirit, something that you wield in an offensive way. This is your weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now we've spent time this weekend in talking about this, that if I pray the will of God, it's the word of God. It's the utterance of God. It's, it's what God wants to do. This is His will. And so my in standing, what am I doing? Before the Lord, I am grasping what He wants to do, and I'm wielding that in this spiritual conflict. I'm bringing the Word to apply to what I see happening. Now, remember I said last night, you don't always know what that is. So sometimes your standing is is more of a heart cry that the will of God would be accomplished. But the very fact of standing, we're told three times, stand, stand, stand. Is, is the first thing. And then we want to understand what God is doing. And, and in the absence of that, there are groanings that cannot be uttered. Yes, there is a nonverbal dimension to prayer. Yes, there is simply sometimes standing, knowing that I'm standing before Him and I'm trusting Him to accomplish His purpose. But I'm going to do my part. I'm going to be that guy that stands in the ferrets, in the breach. So, what does it mean? What do you do with this word of God, this sense of the will of God? Verse 18, praying. There it is. So you're standing. You have a sense of the will of God, the heart of God, because you're in his presence. And uh, we talked about this last night, but if I see what he sees, and I've been touched by his heart, how can I be casual about this? We talked about Paul saying, I'm in labor pains, I'm in travail. Until Christ is formed in you. I was talking to Stephen and his wife. they got this baby in five weeks. They really appreciated my comments last night about labor. That baby's got to come out. I can't take a break. I'll come back and we'll finish this later. No. And so there's no casual aspect to this. There's a sense that this must be happening. I must be a part of this. It must be done. And that's why we keep asking. There's a desperation. There's no other option. There's no other way. There's no other hope. So we stand with that sense of the will of God. Wanting that. And the heart of God. What He, what he sees and how He responds. His compassion. His heart. Pray. Praying. Always, with all prayer and supplication, one of the things that that I find as I as I grow, just as your brother in prayer, is that that time in the morning is so important because the space where I would go and just whether I'm just laying in bed, just talking to the Lord, or sitting in a chair in the living room or wherever I go, that space I carve out in the morning tunes my heart for the rest of the day. It's not like I pray and I'm done. And so this standing thing becomes an attitude of the inner self. And so you may be engaged in other things, but in a very real sense, there's a sense where just like that, I can turn. I'm still standing. It's the attitude of the heart, the inclination of the heart to stand before him. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Everybody needs somebody praying for them. No exceptions. If you're a pastor, church leader, if I was going to do anything, I would would understand that equipping people, the very most important thing I can do to equip somebody is to help them learn to pray so that the head can have a direct and intimate connection to every member of the body. can accomplish his purpose. When he is head of the church, he's building the church. When he's building the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When we see the gates of hell prevailing, he's not building, and we're not connected. And And so, to illustrate, to teach, and to help people, you want to keep holding before them. Everybody needs somebody praying for them. Who are you praying with? Do you have at least one person you pray with? In all the years of ministry out of college, I always had a group of guys I pray with. Sometimes I pray with them individually. Sometimes I pray as a group. Those men always became my closest friends. We moved a lot. Each time the Lord gave me brothers I could pray with. Everybody needs someone praying for them. So how do we do this? Well, Paul gives us the description of what's happening in Ephesians 22. He really does. The Father's looking for someone. He's looking for an intercessor build up the walls, stand in the gap, the parets, who's going to stand before me, before my face and my presence, and who's who wants my will, who is uh, who's going to abide in me, and he's going to let my word, my heart abide in him. And, and this is the posture of the Lord Jesus in the throne room of God. And this is where he's taking you and me, the trajectory of our prayer life. And so, this is the, uh, the why. This is the how. Last question is the where. The where. It's before God. That's what he says. Before God, before his face. But let me help you here. Just, just bear with me a moment. Um, Daniel has a vision. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place. He's he's beyond a thin place. (laughs) He's on the other side. "I, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. And thousands, thousands ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was open and the books were open. That's heaven. That's the throne room. You go to Revelation and you see you see something very similar. Uh, the, the John, the, the apostle, he crosses the divide. The Lord just opens it up, just pulls the curtain back and lets him see. And, um, and so there's this beautiful picture of heaven. And uh, they don't rest day and night, these people surrounding the throne. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive thousands and thousands and thousands bigger than any LSU stadium. If Barrett was here, he would appreciate that. And then you come to Revelation 5, verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, and listen to this, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then they sang a new song. The prayers of the saints. I know if you're normal, there are times when you feel your prayers are not being heard They don't go anywhere. They're hitting the ceiling and dropping back to the floor. In Revelation 5, we discover that every single prayer has been captured and saved. In the throne room of God. When you are interceding for someone, you may not even see the outcome on this side of heaven. In your lifetime. How many people have you known. That prayed and prayed and prayed. For something or for someone. They pass away. And then it all happens. It's not about what we see. It's about the call. To join. In the activity of heaven. And to stand before him. So where do we do this? We do it before him. I, I want to call your attention. To one last example of this. A beautiful example, Moses again, who illustrates everything we've said this morning. And this relationship, when I say where, it's just saying that that before him, the relationship is the foundation of intercession. Our Father. Psalm 106, verse 23. The psalmist says, and he's capturing a moment where the people of Israel had rebelled, they had been idolatrous, and the Lord was ready to destroy them. 106, verse 23. Therefore, he had said that he would destroy them. I'm going to wipe them out. Had not Moses his chosen one stood before him in the parets, in the breach. It's our word again. He stood before him. Long before Ezekiel wrote about, about it, Moses did it. To turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Now, you say, okay, so Moses did this. He he were given the picture of him standing before the Lord in the breach, in the parets. But let's dig a little deeper. The very moment of this is captured in Exodus 32, verse 23, uh, 13. And and I think this is it right there it is. Moses is interceding. And Ephesians 6 tells us what that looks like, how that's done. Well, Moses shows us remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore. This is your word, Lord. This is your promise. This is your will to whom you swore your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of. I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And um, in another passage in Numbers, a similar thing happens when the people refuse to enter the promised land. They're afraid. And God's ready to wipe them off. It happens a second time. It's even more beautiful that time. In Exodus 32, you remember this dialogue between Moses and the Lord. And finally, the Lord relents and says, yes, I'm going to go with you. I'm, my presence, I'm going to come with you. And then Moses isn't satisfied. Show me your glory. The Bible tells us in Exodus 34 that God hid, hid Moses, showed him his, uh, uh, proclaimed his name. That's what it says, proclaimed his name. And in that, there are words used. This is the first time God tells us who he is, what he is like. Exodus 34. He, just, he, he says, I am a God of compassion. He, he uses these phrases, and these phrases are scattered now all throughout the Old Testament. Because it's the Lord, what he most wanted us to know about him in the early part of the revelation, Exodus 34. Well, Moses in Numbers, he takes that same language that he got the first time in Exodus 32. From God revealing himself. What God said about himself. And he comes back to him in numbers. When God's ready to do it again. He doesn't go back to the promise to Abraham now. He comes and he says, but God, this isn't who you are. You, you said this is who you are. That you're a God of compassion and you forgive. And you've been forgiving these people ever since they left Egypt. Why would you stop now? And So Moses, standing before the Lord. Relationship comes first. Show me your glory. I just want to be your guy. I want to be close to you. I want to be intimate with you. And God reveals something of himself to Moses. And there's this awesome understanding that develops. And Moses just keeps coming back in these incredible moments where the Lord is saying, well, because they've done this, my justice, my my wrath would just wipe them out. And Moses says... But this is your word, Lord. This is your will. This is what you have said. So I am asking you to do what you have said. So if I was going to just summarize this, what it means to say that God is looking for someone to stand in the gap. Evil is advancing. Evil will always advance unless deterred. Evil is on the move. But the Lord is looking for a people who will stand in that breach, tip that balance, and accomplish on earth what the Lord has said He wants to do in the throne room of heaven. It's a personal relationship. It's before His face, His countenance. I can't think of any greater blessing than the one given in Israel. Where we ask the Lord to shine his face upon us. Before him. Before his face. It's a personal relationship. It involves. As we talked about this weekend. Seeking him. Drawing near to him. That I might know his will. Through his word. Through his direction. That I might be exposed to his heart. So that I not only will pray the right things. But my heart will be engaged. Influenced by his heart. And what he is seeing how he is responding. And then and then it involves prayer. And sometimes I know exactly how to pray, what to say. Other times I don't have a clue. And I'll be honest with you, many times I don't have a clue. And then and then I just trust that the Lord is pleased, that I am seeking and that he is at work in ways that are rational, but are supra-rational. Sometimes nonverbal because I can't even describe. I just know he's working. And the Spirit describes it this way in Romans 8. Groanings that cannot be uttered. Intercession with groanings that cannot be uttered. It's okay. It's okay. Just keep asking. Keep asking. Can I ask you just for a moment, out your head and to close your eyes? You've been so attentive and so gracious to me this weekend, but we ultimately, we want to just respond to the Lord and what he's saying to us. And I want us to have just a, just a few moments to respond to him. Uh, we're going to sing a song. It's going to be a closing song for the weekend, our time together. And so with our heads bowed and eyes closed, how would the Lord want you to respond to him? When I teach in the fall, one of the last things we do, the last assignments I make with the students, is to write down and turn in some takeaways. What are your takeaways? What are the things the Lord has said to your heart about your prayer life? Your relationship to him? Sometimes when he shows me more of his heart, and I realize how far I fall short of his heart, I just have to repent. It grieves me. It may not have been intentional, but I have just realized how much I have grieved him. And I'm sorry. And uh, if it involves other people, I just have to go make it right. John the Baptist preached the people that kept coming to him. They kept saying, what shall we do? Tax collectors, what shall we do? Soldiers, what shall we do? Presence of God. He just lights up the infinite gap between who he is and who we are. But he loves us and he wants us to know him and be with him. So if if he's talking to you, touching you about something in your life that you need to cast off, that's beautiful, and that's just part of the journey to draw near. And you want to draw near, so don't, don't be discouraged by that. Just say, yes, Lord. Yes. You may have family members, friends, dear ones. You know they have needs. They've come to you so many times telling you about their needs. You might even roll your eyes because here they come again. So as you think about them right now, you realize those needs are real. And there is an unseen dimension to what's happening in their life. And Father, forgive us for seeing the world like mere men and women and not recognizing the reality of what's happening to these dear ones. Maybe you distinctly are recognizing that He is inviting you to a new place in your journey with Him. Prayer is not something extra. Not just something we tack on to a meeting. Coming to him and being with him and seeking him and asking according to his will and heart is the main thing. It's the main thing. If it's the most important thing that preoccupies the Lord Jesus right now, shouldn't it preoccupy us? Father, I thank you for these dear ones and the time we spent together this morning. We give you thanks for the beauty of this place and graciousness of the leaders of the school, the students, for hosting us. Father, we rejoice today in what you have done in our lives. We are grateful that you are on your throne. that not a blade of grass waving in the wind out there escapes your notice. Every single detail of our lives is before You. and We bless You for calling us and inviting us in the privilege of ministering before You in the presence of by your Spirit, with your Word, touched by your heart. I ask that each time these dear ones open your Word and turn to meet with you, that you would grant to them an immediately, immediately, Fresh recognition that you are there. Loving them, receiving them, fully in charge with all authority, and that you've always been there in that capacity. I pray for those who are struggling this morning with things that have plagued their heart or their habits for years and years. That today might be either this moment or in days to come. Recognition that everything changes in your presence, that they might be set free. Set free. We ask that as a consequence of our being together today, we would have a fresh sense that you have called us to action through our prayer life. More and more, may we know your heart, and may our hearts reflect yours. Again, Lord, we bless you. And as we sing, we sing to you. We thank you for hearing us as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.